Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June 29th, 2022. Um, June has been a month, like so many other months uh, in 2022, of different kinds of crises. These crises in America seem to exist in parallel, and yet, of course, they don't. They're entangled with one another. Uh, we've done a number of shows about the gun crisis uh, in America, particularly with a, an excellent writer, Frank Smythe. Um, he has a book, The NRA, The Unauthorized History. I interviewed Frank earlier this month, and he um, predicted darkly that the next three years could be the most violent in American history since Reconstruction, given the various mass murders and political disturbances and perhaps the fact that America is teetering on the brink of civil war. Meanwhile, in parallel, there's a parallel crisis of the American medical system. I've done many, many shows on this with Tom Hartman, for example, uh, has an excellent book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Uh, in this context, I also had the eminent um, medical doctor, Robert Pearl, from Stanford Medical School, the author um, of uh, an important book on uh, patients and doctors uh, on the show uh, last year. His book is Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Uh, Dr. Pearl also has an excellent uh, newsletter, Monthly Musings on American Healthcare. And his monthly musing uh, this month was on the connection, I think, between the healthcare crisis and the, the gun crisis. He called gun violence a chronic disease. And I'm pleased that um, Robert is joining us from New York City. So, Robert, welcome uh, I wish we were in happier times, but of course we're not. You have been one of the most perceptive uh, insider critics of the American healthcare system. You're also a broader critic, I think, of uh, the violence in society. How are they connected? How is gun violence uh, and the crisis of the American medical system, how are they bound up with one another? You can start with just some data, good place to start in medicine. Right now, there's 45,000 people who lose their life every year. That's 25% more than five years ago and almost 50% more than 10 years ago. Uh, guns are now the most common way that patients committing suicide take their lives. And gun violence and suicide now accounts for over half of the gun deaths in the United States. 4,000 people die from domestic violence problems, and gun deaths are now the leading cause of death in young children. Uh, this is a major medical problem, and if you flip it around to the point that you're making, uh, what we have is uh, problems in the healthcare delivery system, problems in access, problems in mental health. We're seeing two systems intersecting. That's why I call it a chronic disease because the chronic disease is something that's always around and then at some point flares up and leads to either severe complications or in many cases to the death of the individual. 
Robert, there must be an enormous frustration on the part of doctors like yourself that most people, particularly in the political and cultural sphere, they don't see it as a medical crisis. They see it as a political crisis. They see it in terms of individual rights. What do doctors like yourself have to do to convince Americans that it is indeed a medical crisis, that the numbers you just threw at us are, are appalling, they're chilling, they're deeply depressing? What needs to change? Well, several things I think need to change, but for physicians... They're frustrated by the number of people who have major injuries unnecessarily. You know, if you watch television, it looks like a bullet is an arrow, which just penetrates through someone. And unless the shooter was an expert at where to aim, most likely the person survives. That's, that's what happens in real life, particularly now with high-velocity rifles. The bullets spin and twist. They create cavitation injuries. They damage a huge amount of the internal aspects of people, and that's why they are so lethal as a consequence of doing that. But I would say that for physicians, they see gun violence as a problem. They don't all see the role that physicians can play. As you said, I have a monthly newsletter, and as part of that, I often have a survey. People can access it on robertprolmd.com, my website. And I just actually did a survey where a significant number of physicians don't see addressing gun safety and gun violence as part of the practice of medicine. They do see the negative consequences that are there, but as you know, they're already feeling overwhelmed and overworked and adding anything else onto their plate is going to be difficult and I'll add one other piece. As you know, within the past uh, week or two, within 24 hours, the Supreme Court ruled both in terms of the New York State's law about guns that would have or is protecting people from gun violence and abortion, which is another source of violence. Yeah, I, I want to talk about abortion separately. We'll, we'll talk about that later in the conversation. There has been, if one's trying to be, vaguely optimistic here. There seems to be some changes politically over this. I mean, even Fox News is acknowledging uh, that gun control measures might affect midterm voting. Um, Biden, of course, signed a gun bill into law, ending, at least according to the New York Times headline, years of stalemate. Are you at all optimistic that this small legislative breakthrough, Robert, will result in the beginning of, 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 of healing this health crisis, or is it just purely cosmetic and meaningless? The fact that Congress came to any agreement after decades of stalemate, I think, is positive. It's just that it's a small step. I mean, people were overwhelmed by the vision of innocent children being shot while other people were around them, uh, unable to do anything to protect the uh, innocent lives. And as a consequence of that, there's momentum. I'm less optimistic that real change is going to come. I'm particularly concerned that the Supreme Court will not be supportive of a lot of the things that could get done. I mean, I teach at Stanford Medical School and Business School, and California has reduced the number of deaths by 55%.
We know things that work. If you can get the guns out of the hands of people, and I don't mean just criminals. I mean, why said suicide and intimate partner violence? These are not uh, criminals at all. These are regular individuals, some of whom may be doing bad things, but this is not a usual sense of what's going on. And California has put in place a significant amount of legislation that has reduced deaths. But how do we get it to happen nationally? How do we have Congress to take more aggressive stance? How do we have the Supreme Court to agree that states can implement these? Uh, I'm, I'm concerned in our current political crisis, Andrew, that these changes that are so needed and so successful could be far off in the future. You're not alone in your pessimism, uh, Robert. What about the generational issue? Lots of pieces in the media about how young people, of course, who are most vulnerable here, the the latest uh, massacre took place, uh, astonishingly, in a school. Um, is there a generational shift or were these kids who are now opposed to guns uh, grow up into gun-owning, gun-toting adults? No, I, I think there's definitely a generational piece. There always has been. You have the idealism of youth, whether it's related to climate or whether it's related to gun violence. And particularly, I think uh, younger people are now feeling very vulnerable. There's been a lot of research done about what's going on in elementary schools and middle schools. And in children's mind, safety is almost as important to them as education. And so we're seeing this very much, and I'm particularly worried about that as we come out of the COVID era. You know, we know what has happened over the past couple of years. Uh, we know that the guidance counselors in schools are reporting a tremendous amount of anxiety and depression sitting in kids. And this threat of violence is only making that much worse. Yeah, we had one of your colleagues, I'm sure you know, uh, Thomas Insel, um, on the show last year, or, uh, actually earlier this year, he has a new book out, Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. He's a very influential thinker, doctor, and actually a politician on, on, the, on the mental health front. Lots of shows about the impact, particularly of the lockdown and COVID on the anxiety uh, of young people. Is this another epidemic? We're talking about, and we will come to COVID, I promise you. Uh, there's the gun epidemic. Um, is anxiety now an epidemic too, uh, Robert? Well, the Especially teen, uh, teen anxiety. I saw an astonishing statistic this morning that 9% of teenagers have considered suicide. I mean, to me, that's beyond shocking. I don't quite know where these numbers are coming from. I don't know whether we can rely on them. No, I think these numbers are very real, unfortunately. Uh, COVID will have an impact for a long time. It's going to have educational and learning issues. It's going to have financial implications. But as you're pointing out, it has tremendous psychological. And one of the things that worries me, and a lot of research was done on this prior to COVID was how adverse events early in life for kids in elementary school, middle school, play out throughout their lives, negatively impacting their ability to be successful as adults and, believe it or not, 
impacting the next generation. And so COVID is going to be a major, major issue for us, I think, for the rest of our lives. But what about specifically the issue of anxiety in teenagers? I mean, COVID didn't invent it. It may have compounded it. What is happening? Why is this now such a raging epidemic amongst teenagers? Anxiety. It can't just be COVID, Rob. It is, I assume social media is a piece. I assume the environmental crisis is a piece. I assume um, the general sense of loneliness and isolation is a piece of this. You're absolutely right on all those. And there's one more piece, which is, do kids feel, and now we're talking about more high school than elementary school, that their lives will be better than their parents? Just about every generation in the United States has had that sense that the future was going to be good, that they were going to be better off economically, better off interpersonally, that the problems of the past have been addressed, not necessarily solved, but have been addressed through a combination of legislation, technology, societal advances. And we're seeing the first generations that are less optimistic. And when you lose that optimism, you see the anxiety, you see the depression, you see the pessimism. And as you said, often that's associated with mental health issues and suicidal ideation. Robert, the obvious solution to this is to throw more money at all these issues. But as I noted on your website, um, where you keep up with these things, you're an authority on U.S. healthcare spending. It grew 9.7% in 2020, reaching $4.1 trillion. That's 19.7% of the gross domestic product. It's not as if we're not spending money on these things. It's just the money is, what, misdirected, wasted? Much of it perhaps is even stolen? There's a lot of issues. You know, and as you know, I've written two books. The first one was on the systemic problems. And what we're seeing is, yes, a lot of waste that exists, not because people aren't working hard, but because they, the system isn't integrated. So you don't get the level of collaboration and cooperation. It's paid on this piecemeal basis. The more you do, the more you get paid. Whether it adds any good, that doesn't really matter. You get paid the same. The technology that we use is left over from the last century, although actually left over from the one before, because the most common way that doctors exchange information is the fax machine, an 1834 invention. I know, and I'm amazed that the doctors are the only people these days still using telephones. They don't use email. Exactly, exactly. But imagine the fax machine. when we (laughs) You have to take a document that's on the computer, print it out, put it into the fax machine, get it in a second office, and then enter it into the computer. We want to talk about a lot of the waste that is there. No, it's a very broken system, but also it's a very broken culture of medicine that has made... Yeah, which you, of course, wrote about in your excellent book, Uncaring, And even more depressingly, Robert, that everybody acknowledges this. I don't think anyone would argue with you. No doctor, no politician. And yet it's completely off the political table now. I don't remember the last time Joe Biden even talked about uh, the healthcare crisis. It kills politicians, so they avoid it. So it's not even a political issue anymore. I think the problem is that there's no painless solution and politicians don't like 
to pass legislation that people are going to experience as pain. So that's one of the big challenges I think that that's facing right now. And then you have all of the lobbying and the pressure. You know, in December of 2019, before COVID came ashore, the federal government predicted, remember, this is before we had the inflation of today, a 5 to 6% increase in healthcare costs every year for the next decade. And that wasn't for better healthcare. That was for the same healthcare. When you do the math, we're talking, Andrew, about $2.5 trillion. Imagine if we use that money for chronic disease, for social determinants of health, for preschool education. I mean, how many ways can you and I think about using $2.5 trillion? But every one of those dollars that we would then be able to use for a better purpose, someone in the healthcare system, could be drug industry, could be hospital industry, could be doctors, it could be nurses, sees it as a takeaway. Because in the culture of medicine, they see that as an entitlement. And unless we can break through that, unfortunately, I'm not optimistic that we're going to address the challenges to take out the waste that's there and use that money to improve quality, increase access, and diminish cost. And we haven't even talked about drug prices. Uh, you had an interesting piece in Forbes uh, recently on drug pricing and the way in which um, drug companies profit perhaps illegally from, 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 from the American consumer through the system. Robert, you teach at Stanford Law School. Let's play a, a game. If, if, if America came into your waiting room as a patient, how do you teach it to get better? You suggested earlier that it involves pain. If a patient comes into your office and they're sick, they will accept a degree of pain if they, they, they also assume that that's one way of getting better. Why can't America deal with this pain? And can doctors help frame the conversation? So I teach at the business school and the medical school. And as you know, uh, the combination of those two gives me a broad perspective. I would make the analogy to someone who comes in with diabetes, who's obese, and needs to lose weight. And that involves exercise and changing diet habits. Uh, that's painful. And it's very hard to convince a patient to do the things that we know will improve that person's life, that we know will make it less likely that they're going to get complications and die and have heart attacks, strokes. And I can go through the whole list of things. It's just hard to do it, particularly when it happens every single day. The biggest shift that's necessary, I believe, is moving from this FIFA service system to capitation. You know, when I speak to CEOs, I ask them, how many of you have ever remodeled a kitchen or a bathroom? And of course, every hand goes up. And they say, how many of you just paid time and materials, said to the contractor, do whatever you want. I'll just pay you for your time and materials. Every hand comes down. Moving from FIFA service to capitation would be a powerful first step. But think about the challenge. Yeah, but Robert, how's that going to work? I, I just had some hip surgery. Am I supposed to negotiate with the anesthesiologist, with the doctor, with the nurses, with the physios? I mean, it's absurd. Most, most consumers, most healthcare patients are not able or interested or have the time to be able to do that. 
absolutely right. That's why the capitated system by which a group of doctors in hospitals whose quality and patient satisfaction you can evaluate based upon publicly available data, now take that responsibility and they figure out as the people delivering your care, how do we better coordinate the surgeon, the assistant surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the operating room, the hospital? How do we make sure that we avoid complications? Because now as a capitated organization, something goes wrong, we're gonna pay the price along with you as the patient. How do we invest in advance to making sure you've had the physical therapy so that after your surgery, you can quickly get up and avoid having a blood clot thrown to your lung. Those are the kinds of ways that doctors can start thinking once they're paid in a different kind of way. And right now it's just, I schedule the surgery and I make the money. If I do two surgeries, I make twice the money. Whether the patient can walk two years later or not has no implication <laughs> for me personally, as opposed to in a capitated system where I share in your pain. I don't know why I'm laughing, Robert. Uh, we need a charismatic Surgeon General. Maybe Robert Pearl could be one or perhaps America's most trusted, I don't know if he's a doctor or medical figure, uh, Tony Fauci. Um, has COVID changed anything in terms of American trust and liking for scientists, doctors like Fauci and indeed Robert Pearl? Is America ready? to trust a Pearl or a Fauci in terms of really reinventing the system? Or we, we kept on hearing under COVID, it's changing everything. Uh, my sense is it hasn't changed very much. It simply compounded everything. So COVID, I think, brought out both the heroism of doctors and the problems of the healthcare system. So they're more visible, but um, I don't think it has really changed very much. What we saw is that telemedicine, which to me is a very powerful tool. I wrote a piece recently in the Harvard Business Review about five ways beyond simply a doctor and a patient connecting that telemedicine can radically change uh, healthcare in a positive way. As an example, using video to bring a specialist into the room when you're seeing your primary care physician so that the diagnosis can be made immediately and care begun and doing it at a price that's much less than seeing the specialist. It went up to 60, 70% during the pandemic. And as you know, it has slid way back to, all, to about 10% if you exclude the mental health areas where it is still being used pretty extensively. So we knew these things. We saw chronic disease, uh, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, killing patients in the pandemic at a rate that was dramatically higher. 88% of the people who died in New York City had two or more chronic diseases, and yet now we're back to ignoring it, ignoring chronic disease in the same way we did before with only 55% of Americans with high blood pressure being in control, whereas when I was the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we were at 90%. Not because our doctors were better. We had great doctors, but the great doctors in the community because the system was better, the technology was better, and a capitated prepaid system gave us the incentive to prevent those problems rather than the economic driver of benefiting when they occur. 
the, the, I actually have been a member of Kaiser, and, and I have to acknowledge not just because you were the the you ran it for a while, but it's it's of of all the the American healthcare providers, it's the best because it's a walled garden. Uh, but it's still a, a privatized for profit business. What about the single? What about the Canadian European model, Robert? It, we don't hear about that anymore. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren talks about it, but politically it doesn't seem viable. Is it conceivable that this could still work in America or is it simply politically impossible? Well, first, let me make one correction that the uh, Kaiser part of Kaiser Permanente is a not-for-profit. So there are no uh, shareholders who benefit economically or any dollars that have, are generated have to go back to community benefit. But to ask the broader question, the truth is, from my perspective, it doesn't really matter who pays for the care. There are inefficiencies in a multi-payer system that exists. But the biggest challenge is that the cost of care is exceeding the ability to pay. And particularly now, we're about to see, Andrew, a huge increase in healthcare costs. We haven't seen it yet because the healthcare that is uh, that is being paid is still based upon contracts that were written a year ago, and inflation is a relatively new phenomenon. But it's coming up ahead. So the single payer system, I think, is not a question of how many payers. It can be government run, and the advantage the government has right now is it can set the price unilaterally. But if you look at the price that's currently being paid, a, a a huge number of hospitals are going to simply disappear because you can't have a system where the government pays 90% of the cost of care, which is what Medicare pays today, and a 4% margin for hospitals. Half of them could go out of business, out of the community, and this is never addressed. So my answer to you is it's not going to happen. It's not going to politically go into play because the hospitals and the doctors are going to demand that they be paid the full amount, which will cost the government trillions of dollars at a time the government has already overspent. And on the other side, you're going to have the uh, uh, doctors and hospitals not being able to take the current payments that, that exist. I think it's going to be a non-starter regardless of that. What's also interesting, though, for your listeners is how many countries that we think of as being government funded, it's actually a combination of government and private. And what Americans may not realize is that 50% of the dollars spent in healthcare today come from the government. We don't have a fully private system. Medicare is paid by the government. Medicaid is paid by the government. And we have a huge amount of government private industry, just like other countries. So I don't think that's the solution. The problem, I think, Andrew, is in the delivery of care. It's the out-of-date technology. It's the lack of collaboration and cooperation. It's a broken system of doctor and hospital reimbursement. Yeah, it's the and, worst of all worlds. It's the worst of all worlds. Uh, Robert, you wrote this book, uh, Uncaring, a couple of years ago, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Uh, you make the argument that doctors are more miserable in some ways than patients. Has COVID been particularly bad for doctors? Are they more miserable now? Should we expect an exodus from the industry of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals? We, it definitely has been very difficult 
on doctors and nurses, particularly ones who were in the areas where COVID was taken care of, the ERs, the critical care units. And it was a combination, I think, of both, again, systemic and cultural aspects. Systemically, you had an overwhelming demand with inadequate resources, and people were stretched day after day. They were forced to take risks to their own health due to inadequate protection from the gowns and the masks that they needed. They had to down, put on uh, garbage bags in place of gowns and salads in place of masks. But culturally also, you know, we saw unrelenting death. I talked to one doctor who lost four patients in a single day. Now try to imagine you've spent your entire life dedicated to saving people. You've spent your whole life with a sense that you could make a difference and four of your patients pass away on a single day. The psychological devastation is great. And I think we're gonna see massive PTSD. I think we're gonna see a lot of nurses leaving the field. I think we're gonna see a lot of physicians having major psychological problems. Because in medicine, what do we get taught as physicians? Hide your emotions. They just get in the way of objective decision-making, we're told. And deny psychological problems. And whatever you do, never admit you need psychological help. And that's going to have a major impact. I think we're going to see a lot more depression, psychological issues. And already there's 400 physician suicides a year. That number is likely to go up. And as if all this wasn't enough, the icing on the cake, the cherry on all this is the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. Suddenly, um, the government is back in interfering in healthcare in a massively controversial way. Some people are even suggesting that Clarence Thomas, one of the Supreme Court's justices, want to tackle contraception next. Um, how is this changing or how could the Roe decision from the court, how how might this uh, change everything and add to the crisis that American healthcare is facing, Robert? This is one of the most terrible rulings that I have read in uh, decades. It's going to put women's lives at risk. Already, the United States has the worst maternal mortality in the world. And by worst, I don't mean by a little. Overall, we're four times worse than other nations. And if you happen to be a black woman, you're 10 times higher than the next highest country in the world. Uh, we're seeing a tremendous impact on families. This ruling is going to disproportionately affect socioeconomically challenged individuals who can't go to another state and get care. It's going to uh, challenge people of color who are often in jobs that doesn't, doesn't give the time to go elsewhere, and it's going to dramatically impact doctors. 50% uh, of the trainees, the residents in OBGYN, are in programs in states that have already outlawed abortion in one fashion or another, and we know it's going to get worse over time. They will be poorly trained, inadequately trained. They're going to be dealing with women, and they're going to be fearful for their licenses, they'd be fearful of not going to jail. This is a disaster that is unraveling in front of our eyes. And if something can't get done, and I don't know what it's going to be, because with the court's majority and the age of the justices 
I don't see it changing fast. This is going to be a next crisis, both for America and for society. Yeah, the, the picture you're painting, Robert, is deeply depressing. And yet the world goes on, business goes on, hospitals remain open, we all still go to our doctors. How could this crisis manifest itself unambiguously in a way that makes it clear that the American healthcare crisis is the heart of the crisis of the republic? What could go wrong in the next 10 or 15 years? Give me the worst. You've already painted a pretty dark picture. Give me the worst case scenario. We've talked about civil war in America politically. There are a number of writers who believe, indeed, that America is already involved in a civil war. Uh, the political meltdown, the worst case scenario in political terms. What's the worst case scenario in medical terms? Well, I don't know that it's even the worst, but I think it's actually the most likely, unfortunately, is that we will truly devolve into a a two-tier system. You know, we already have places in the United States where literally five or 10 miles apart you have a 15-year lower life expectancy of parts of the population against the other parts. And I think that that possibly will become the norm, that what's going to happen is that as the economic pressures grow, that rather than trying to reform American healthcare and find ways that are more efficient and use modern technology to solve problems, We're just going to slowly take away more and more from a larger segment of the population. And then that segment of the population will have growing problems and they'll have difficulty in their children and will get embedded in the next generation. And we simply will become like many other countries around the world. There'll be the group of haves who get great care, have reasonable lives, and the have-nots. And the have-nots will grow. And right now we have that with the very poor. Medicaid is not in any way equal to the rest of care that's provided, but it's going to be the middle class. And what's going to happen at that point? I don't know. Will they make a change to the ballot box? Possibly. Will you see growing unrest and will you see protests like we saw in times of the past? Maybe. Will we see some kind of violence coming out of all of that? Those are the horrific outcomes. And my hope is that we will see these things in advance and address them in a way to make healthcare the right that it should be for all Americans and to make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Uh, yeah, you ended with that flourish, Robert. I don't think you even believe that. I mean, the, the system is in such crisis. What else um, are you reading? Uh, you're a well-read man. You're a writer. Your new your book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, is still an essential read to understand the crisis of American healthcare. What uh, What are you reading, both medical and non-medical, to make sense of the world? As you know, I have my own podcast called Fixing Healthcare, and I'm focused on breaking the rules. So I often read in association with my guest, Malcolm Gladwell was the first guest, this season, and I read, reread his book, Outliers, recently a woman named Lindsay Fitzharris, who wrote a book called The Facemaker, which is about Sir Harold Gillies in World War I and the advances in uh, facial reconstruction following the traumas of the war. Uh, I tend to read books for fiction that are not quite as serious, 
I like John Grissom. I just wrote, read his recent book called Suli, very different than the other ones that are there. But I think I'm spending a lot of my time now listening to podcasts. The world is changing so fast that I think books are often out of date by the time they are published. And I'm spending a lot of time, particularly listening to a lot of the New York Times columnists, a growing number of whom now have their own podcasts.